Morning, everyone. Glad to see everybody here. Uh, we have two passages today, one from Zechariah and the other one from the book of Luke. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and a steward will come to grab a Bible for you. The first passage will come from Zechariah and not many of you will know where that is. So it's actually the second last book of the Old Testament, just before Malachi. Or if you have a phone, just click. We'll be reading starting from verse 14. Sorry, chapter 14, verse 1. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when to spoil, the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his fleet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split into two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. You shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost. And there shall be a unique, unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, his name one. The second passage comes from Luke, as we've been reading. Luke chapter 19, and we'll be starting from verse 28. Luke 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on wintering you will find a cold tide on which no one has ever asked, ever yet asked, ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it was just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the coat, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, as he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they have seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's great to see everyone here. Uh, we've been taking a big hit, obviously, um, in many ways, uh, more than one, um, with Omicron virus going around the place. Uh, as many of you may have may know, know there's quite a, there are a few positive cases within our church community, and obviously then with that, quite a lot of close contact. Uh, we've got lots of uh, young uh, in our church who are not yet vaccinated as well, as well as some elderly, elderly who are obviously in need of being cautious during this time. Uh, but it's still great to have you guys here. It's great to see you all here. And for those of you watching in from homes, 
Uh, I'm glad that you can be uh, at home safe at the moment. So um, thanks for watching in. Uh, and um, uh, even though it's not quite the same when we're not physically gathered together, uh, it's encouraging that we are still making every effort to meet together. Uh, I am really praying and hoping that in the coming weeks, things will settle down uh, and we'll be able to all meet together again. Uh, but for now, we need to do what we need to do uh, and keep on pressing on with life. Uh, in light of that, uh, Pastor Steve, as uh, some of you might know, have writ has written a pastor's desk uh, that he has published onto our Facebook group, uh, um, SLE Church Facebook group. Uh, if you haven't got access to that, um, uh, just um, uh, ask, I guess, um, what's the word, right word for it? Mm, apply, whatever. Um, you also get it in our church WhatsApp messages. And if you want to get onto that, go to our church website. It's probably the best way to, to, to figure things out, sle.church um, slash welcome or something, and you'll find all access to different things that you might want to know and read about our church. Uh, and we'll access this uh, article that Steve has written uh, just to inform us and to encourage us uh, as we face the current crisis of COVID and its spread and how we as a church want to respond to that. So please do have a read of that. But for us, uh, we're going to be uh, carrying on in our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke, which we began uh, quite a few weeks back now in this current series, in this later half of the book. Um, we'll be going to the end of chapter 22 uh, in the next month or so, uh, and then we'll be returning to finish up the book of Revelation uh, after that in around mid-February, uh, the last six chapters, before we dive into uh, the book of Acts. Um, it's a big year coming up. We've uh, kind of been on a holding pattern for these two years with, with COVID uh, uh, in the midst. A lot of the plans and the big visions that we had to grow the church, we kind of put on hold for a bit as we uh, necessarily became a little bit more insular, I guess. Uh, but we're really hoping that now it's two, two years into the pandemic, and even though things are pretty messy at the moment, we want to keep thinking about how we can continue to strive uh, for God's kingdom uh, and in doing God's work. Uh, and that maybe this year is a time where we want to really get our engines going again to think about how we can uh, reach the world for Christ, especially by starting with uh, our communities around us. So I uh, do hope uh, that we'll be prepared uh, to dive into a big year coming up. Now, we are going to continue our sermon series in Luke, so please keep your Bibles open to Luke 19, uh, looking at verse 28 to 44. We'll be looking at a few Old Testament passages as well, but I'll flash those up on the screen so you don't have to flip around your Bible so much. Uh, but when it comes to the Luke 19 part, uh, please do... Um, uh, look down in your Bibles. Uh, as always, there is a bulletin and outline of the sermon available for you to follow along or to write notes if you, if you wish. So if you haven't got one of those and you like one, just wave your hands around and one of our host team will pass you one. Or if you're online somewhere, you can download it from our live stream uh, or the WhatsApp uh, message or the church website. So please uh, make yourselves available to that. Uh, the best thing we can do now, though, is to pray and ask that God would speak to us uh, through His Word. Uh, I, I hope that we all come with uh, anticipation that God would speak to us uh, and really encourage us and comfort us in this kind of time that we live in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be gathered here today, either in person here at church or in homes, uh, that in different ways we have the opportunity and the technology to be able to still meet together, to still um, sing together, sit under your word together, uh, and to, to be able to, in different ways, encourage each other. And we pray now as we come into this uh, passage, as we look into events that are very specific that happened a long time ago, we pray that you'll help us to not just understand what it means, but really be able to appreciate the, the significance of what this passage is saying uh, in a way that perhaps we might not expect, but in a way that would really comfort us and challenge us. Uh, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, 2022 has begun. It's only been barely a week uh, since the year has begun, and it's been a whirlwind of stress, hasn't it? A whirlwind of stress and struggle. Um, certainly, the last couple of weeks, I've meant to be on holidays. I was meant to be in Sydney, but that got cancelled. Uh, and then um, I started, I have a couple of symptoms at the beginning of the holidays, so I got tested. So I was in isolation for five days for the result to come out. Um, there has been positive cases, as, uh, as you may know, in our church with lots of close contact. Uh, lots of people struggling in different ways. Uh, we've seen the exponential increase in COVID cases around Australia. Uh, if you didn't know, today will be the day we hit a million active cases, I think it is, around Australia. So that's crazy, it's like a million, it's like one in 25 Australians. And the past week or so, maybe you've been caught up in the PCR testing queues, waiting hours, even though you were feeling unwell, or knowing people who did that. We've been queuing for rats, Right, who thought we'd be queuing for rats? But yes, we've been there. RAT is the new three-letter three uh, abbreviation that we've all come to know and, I guess, kind of hate. 
Um, there's all this craziness going on. Um, and it's just adding to already the other things in life we, without COVID that we probably already have been struggling with over the years. Uh, we've got other health issues that don't go away just because there's COVID. There are other relational problems that we have that continue to remain an issue and an impact in our lives. We may be struggling with financial issues or with our studies or with our work. And so in many ways, one way or another, we're all facing the weight, I would say, isn't it, of all kinds of different difficulties. And so perhaps today, especially on a day like today, we come to the Word of God, we come to church, and we're hoping to hear something really specific, something really real and relevant and practical, something that will be very inspiring and uplifting, right? Um, I, I spoke to someone in the first service, and he was hoping for maybe like a Philippians, you know, four passage about not being anxious, a uh, passage about, you know, something that's joyful and uplifting. And then we come to here, the Bible reading, and we hear some obscure Old Testament prophet called Zechariah, and then we hear about Luke 19, and yes, it is specific. Uh, yes, it is practical. Yes, for those disciples back then. But how is it going to be relevant and practical and inspiring and uplifting for us? Right? 2,000 years after these very specific historical events. Because this, this, this passage is very historical. It, it's a very specific situation here of, of a final step of a journey that Jesus uh, took. Right? That began back in chapter 9. If you've been following along the series, back in chapter 9, Jesus had set his GPS right, as he headed towards Jerusalem. And for the last 10 chapters, he's been moving slowly towards Jerusalem. And here, finally, he's about to enter Jerusalem. Very specific and very practical, but for the disciples. They're given specific instructions. And then we hear some specific reactions from the crowds back then and a specific reaction from the Pharisees back then. And let's be honest, we were wondering how this passage is going to do anything for us today. It can be easy to wonder and doubt how a text that describes something so specific about an event 2,000 years ago in a totally different historical context can actually be real and relevant and, in fact, even uplifting. And I want to say to you that be prepared to be surprised, right? Be prepared to be surprised because we don't even need to twist this passage to make it say what we hope for it to say to us. We just simply need to understand what it's saying and more so to appreciate the significance of what is going on uh, in this historical event to see how it is deeply relevant and deeply comforting and uplifting for us today. Because we'll see in this passage that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, right, in full control as the Christ, the King, on a cult to bring in glorious peace, right, glorious peace that is good for all believers and that is glorious to the King. As believers today, I think it's something that we can embrace and rejoice in we can fill our hearts with worship even, even though our hearts may be shrinking a little from all the stresses that we are facing. And if you're not a believer here this morning, then I hope that you won't miss the peace that Jesus the King offers and comes to give to you, that you won't be like the Pharisees and the city of Jerusalem back then in missing the visitation of the King and what the King offers. So let's, look, let's get into it, right? Now, as we begin looking into verse 8, 28, chapter 19, verse 28, we realize that we're dealing with a very specific historical context. He's about to enter Jerusalem. The GPS was set back in chapter 9, verse 51. Uh, he's making his way into Jerusalem. It's a city of his destiny, right? It's the place where his mission will end. Jesus foretold and repeated himself many times over the past 10 chapters, if you go and read back from chapter 9 onwards, about why it is that he has to end up in Jerusalem, because it is in Jerusalem where he will be arrested and where he will be abused and he will be persecuted and he will be tortured and then finally he'll be killed before he rises again. And he tells us this is the reason why he came into this world as a baby. He came to seek and save the lost. Right? He came uh, to give his life as a ransom and Jerusalem is the place where his mission of his coming into this world will be fulfilled. And so in this passage, we find ourselves, or we find Jesus right outside uh, Jerusalem at this place called the Mount of Olives. Uh, this will work again. Okay, so if you were to know your geography of the Mount of Olives, it's only a few hundred meters uh, east of the city of Jerusalem. And if you are standing on this occasion where the photo is taken, you can see the city of Jerusalem just across the valley there, right? It's just outside the city of Jerusalem, the city of his destiny. And here, 
he gives his disciples some very specific instructions before he makes his entry into the city. So if you look at verse 30 and 31, Jesus tells the disciples the exact location of this colt, right, which is this donkey, the condition of this colt, it will never have been ridden before, and how they will be questioned right, about this colt and what they have to say in response. And then in verse 32 to 33, right, we are report, it reported to us that it happened exactly as Jesus says. Right, so, so why all this detail, all this dialogue? Like, do we really need to know all this information? Like Jesus telling the disciples uh, about the cult, uh, where it is, its condition, what they will be said, and then having to also repeat it when it actually happens. And you see, I, I think the detail is there for us to, to really get this theme of control that, that really comes through in this passage, isn't it? Jesus, Jesus makes it a point to foretell things that will happen even to the finest of details about a donkey. And we realize that this isn't the first time that Jesus is doing this. He's been doing this all through the journey, all through his life. Smallest, finest details, like in this passage, to the bigger details, like the fact that he's going to end up in Jerusalem and what will happen to him in Jerusalem, as well as the biggest details of, as to how he comes to fulfill the Word of God, the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament. You see, the point is that Jesus is in control. He is in control. In, in a world and, and in living a life that seems so out of control, so much of the time, the kind of life that we're living right now, Luke makes it a point to record down for us all of the things that show Jesus to be in control so that we may have certainty to know that there is someone in control in our out-of-control lives. Now, how desperately do we need to be reminded of this? Even as things feel so volatile and so confusing and uncertain in the world that we live in right now, how much do we need to be reminded that Jesus is in control? In the smallest of things, as well as in the biggest of things, eternity-defining things, everything, Jesus is in control. Now, the details aren't there just to affirm Jesus' control of events. It's got much deeper significance for those who know and understand the Old Testament, the background, the prophecies right, that are behind this passage. Right, when we read the details of this passage, if we're not familiar with the Old Testament, it may all just gloss over us. But if you were a Jewish person who knew your Bible, then some of these details here are actually particularly impactful. Right, the first one being the location. Right? One such detail that if you were a good Jew who knew your Bible, you would go, ooh, Mount of Olives. It's a place of great Jewish significance. Right? It's granted in history. If you were to go back to your history as a Jew and you remember that the, the first time the Mount of Olives is mentioned is when the great King David, right, God's chosen king, God's first chosen king, he is betrayed. And as we read this in 2 Samuel, right, but David went up uh, the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And the great King David, God's Messiah from the Old Testament, had come up this mountain to weep on his betrayal. And in fact, in just a few days' time, Jesus himself would return to the Mount of Olives and he too would cry on the night that he is betrayed. And then you also know maybe in Zechariah, you know this famous prophecy as well. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. In this prophecy, the Lord God himself is said to, to come as king. He'll have one foot on the north of the mountain and the other foot on the south of the mountain and it will split. And it will be the, the sight and the expression of his victory and his demonstration of his power and rule as the king over all the world on the Mount of Olives. It's not a nothing detail that Jesus stands here at the Mount of Olives at this very moment of his entry into Jerusalem where he will be crowned king. And as I said, indeed, he'll be back here again in a couple of days on this very night where he's betrayed. But it's not just the place, uh, the Mount of Olives, that's significant. The mode of transport itself is significant as well. So uh, uh, earlier on in Zechariah's prophecy, we read this. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous in having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And once again, back in Zechariah, a few hundred years before what we see in Luke 19, there's this prophecy. And clearly, his, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, understood the significance of the one who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And we read here, it's not just the 12 disciples, right? Usually when we think of disciples, we think of the inner group. But here, there is a multitude of disciples. There is a larger crowd of followers, right, who are witnessing all this. Uh, and they recognize Jesus as the promised king. And we know that because they put their own cloaks on the colt, right, to, as, as like a saddle for the, the royal donkey. And then they put the cloaks on the ground, like a, giving Jesus the red carpet treatment. It's a royal procession, isn't it, into the city. It is what's symbolized here. Right? They, 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 they get the significance of, a, of, a, of, a, of, of Jesus on a colt coming down the Mount of Olives. They see it clearly as, I guess, a, a fulfillment of this prophecy from Zechariah. But it's strange. Have you ever seen a king riding a donkey? Is that usually the royal mode of transport? Right? Would you see a king riding into battle uh, on a donkey or on the coronation? Right? They may be on a chariot, they may be, but not a donkey, right? Now, some of us here, actually most of you here are probably too young, but some of you here were around Brisbane seven, eight years ago when Obama came for the G20 summit. Right? President uh, Barack Obama of the United States of America right, came to Brisbane in 1994, and when he entered into our city, right, he came in a huge procession, a, a huge motorcade, isn't he? As he drove down Coronation Drive, and some people from church went there to have a sticky beak, have a look, when he came into UQ and gave his famous lecture, there was a, a multitude, a full motorcade of police cars and motorcycles and helicopters that would hover the skies, right? There were snipers on roofs. President Obama himself came in what was known as the Beast, right? His famous car, Cadillac 1, first car, one of the most impressive cars ever made, right? Don't worry about the details there, but basically he's telling you it's got eight in, uh, eight, Eight-inch armor plating, five-inch bulletproof glass, Kevlar-reinforced tires, hermetically sealed against chemical attack, uh, and a driver better than Jason Statham from the transporter. Okay, best driver in the world drove the beast. Most impressive car, you would say, but God's king, right? The, the God's king, the ruler of the heavens and the earth, the entire universe, Jesus Christ. He came on a lowly donkey. Not even one horsepower, right? Just one donkey power. That's all we, that, that is. There's no protection. There's no pump, no driver. It's just a lowly farm animal. Clearly, he's a different sort of king, isn't he? He's a different sort of king. He comes in humility. He comes to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to be a sacrifice for our sins. And so we see this picture of a Christ on the cult, which is a strange picture of supreme power devoted to humble service. The Christ on the cult. Supreme power coming devoted to humble service. And it's precisely this strange picture of the Christ in humility that wins the battle for glorious peace. It's what's is, is what needed for peace to be given to us. And so the Christ crowd, right? Have a look at verse 38. Blessed is the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You see, the multitude of the disciples, they cry out. Right? What, what, There's the same kind of words, the same kind of truths that the multitude of angels cried out when Jesus was born. All right, Christmas just happened a few weeks back. Maybe you read this passage, Luke, 10, uh, Luke 2 and Jesus' birth. The angel said uh, to them, Fear not, uh, this is to the shepherds, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was the angel, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Hear that? 
Peace on earth, peace in heaven, peace everywhere. Glorious peace, glorious glory to God in the highest, right? The glory of peace is seen in the birth of Jesus and as he is about to enter to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission. Now, as some of you might know, you've been around for a while, that one of my favorite all-time words is the word shalom, right? which is the Hebrew word for peace. And I prefer using the word shalom because the, the way we use peace in English is often so kind of limited and so weak compared to the peace, the shalom that the Bible speaks about. The shalom of the Bible is about having all things uh, as they should be, enjoying the rest that we were created for. It's the picture of Genesis 1 into the beginning of chapter 2, uh, a perfect relationship with our Creator, in perfect relationship with each other, and in perfect relationship with the world, the creation, where there is nothing bad and nothing sad, where there is order and not chaos, where there is life and light, not death or darkness. The, the peace that God talks about is glorious. Right, the word glory means weightiness, substantial, significant. Weighty, significant, glorious peace is what Jesus came to give us. This is why Christ, this is why Christ came, this is why He came to bring. The Christ in power came in humility to make all things right. Now, this is Jesus here entering Jerusalem, as we'll come to see in the following chapters. Uh, we know where it's going to end up, isn't it? He is going to die on the cross uh, to be able to deal with the problem of sin. And sin is exactly the problem that needs to be dealt with because sin is what kills peace. There is no peace in this world because there is sin in this world. Sin destroys the shalom of creation. Sin destroys the peace that we have with God. It breaks the relationship with our Creator. Sin destroys our relationships with each other, with our families or with our friends, with our colleagues every day. Sin is what destroys our world. All of the, 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 the infections and all of the impactions of the world and how broken it is, at the, at the heart of it all, it came because of the curse of sin. I know I don't need to remind you about how messy our world is. Sometimes we are good at putting our heads in the sand and just thinking that everything's okay. But I, I reckon that in the last few days especially, it's a bit hard to pretend like everything's okay, isn't it? The world's a mess at every level, and we know this. And, we are, and we're feeling it, many of us. And we're being hurt by it. Whether it is the virus and how life it is living in this virus uh, pandemic, or whether it is in the other struggles that we have with our mental health or with our relationships or with our work, our finances, Whatever it is, I think we all feel the, the, the pain of, in a, of a world, of a life that is not at peace. But here we see that the Christ came in humility to make things right. He came in humility to die on a cross to deal with sin. And that's not, there's not many mistakes about this, right? It takes the full divinity and authority of the Christ as king, but it takes the full divinity of the Christ in humble service as our saviour, for peace to be given to us, for the problem of sin to be solved. And so we have here a picture of the king on a cult riding into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, very specific, very historical, but very relevant, isn't it, for us today? Truly beautiful and desperately needed for us right now. This Jesus who brings in glorious peace is then for... Isn't he fully, fully deserving then of our worship and of our praise? And we see this in the passage, right? He comes in, they get the significance, and they give him the worship that Jesus deserves. The crowds were made up of Jesus' many disciples. They saw the significance, and they gave Jesus the worship. And once again, if you were to know your Old Testament, then you will know that this isn't some kind of, sort of spontaneous made-up worship. Uh, it wasn't something that was sort of made up uh, on the spot. They were, in fact, quoting directly from the Old Testament, Right, from a Messianic psalm, Psalm 118, a psalm that talks about the Christ, the King, that the Lord God Himself will send. And so the crowds here in verse 39, they sing Psalm 118, they worship Jesus with these words. They saw Jesus fulfilling uh, the, the promise, the prophecy that the Lord God would send a King. Jesus is this King. Here is God's King in your midst. Now up to this point, of the story, if you've been following along in Luke, you know that Jesus has been very circumspect. 
he's been quite secretive about who he really is. Uh, we know that to his 12 inner disciples, he would speak to them plainly, but to the crowds, he would speak in parables and riddles so that they wouldn't really understand necessarily. And if we remember back in chapter 9, <clears throat> before Jesus began his journey into Jerusalem, uh, his uh, disciple Peter actually figured out who Jesus really is, right? So you go back to chapter 9, and then Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, he gets it, right? You are the Christ of God. But then Jesus strictly commands them not to tell anyone about this, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected uh, and, uh, by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You hear me? This is the theme of, of the earlier part of the journey where Jesus says, don't tell anyone who I really am because they won't understand. Not until I have gone into Jerusalem to suffer and die and rise again. But, but here... In chapter 19, mere days before the suffering and the killing and the resurrecting will happen and be fulfilled, it seems like it is time for people to know. Because Jesus comes down, uh, the Christ on the cult, he receives the worship of the crowds. It's all open now. Right? The mission is, is about to be complete to bring peace. No more hiding, all out in the open. But... In the crowds, there are the Pharisees, isn't there? And they are not on board with this. They are not on board with this. They are offended by this. They object to this. But for them, this is blasphemy. You can't. This, it, they didn't believe in Jesus as king, obviously. It's blasphemy. But not only that, they were probably also worried politically. Like we are under the Roman king here. Well, we can't be worshipping some other king. We're going to be in trouble. Now, clearly, they don't believe that Jesus is the promised Christ. Remember, the Pharisees are the leaders of God's people who knew their Bibles inside out, but they rejected Jesus as king. Now, if you were here last week, and you heard the sermon about the parable that Jesus taught about this nobleman, right, who went into a, foreign, uh, a faraway country to receive his kingdom, uh, and then we are told that in verse 12, there were citizens of this nobleman's country who refused to have this king rule over them. These citizens are the, the Pharisees that we see in real life here in this instance. And they confront Jesus, and they say to Jesus in verse 39, Teacher, hey teacher, and that's all that you are, just a rabbi, rebuke your disciples for this blasphemy, right? We're going to get in trouble here. Command them to stop before the Romans come on to us. I mean, I mean, I'm paraphrasing what they're saying here a little bit, but they probably would have been pretty upset. Like you're not the king, so stop this nonsense. Stop this nonsense. But Jesus won't stop them. He won't stop them and he can't stop them because the worship of the king is inevitable. But have a look at verse 40. Jesus replies to them, I tell you, I tell you, if these crowds were silent, the very stones that you see on the floor here, they would cry out. Even if I could silence the crowds, the stones themselves would cry out in worship of me. You see, even inanimate creation knows Jesus, who he really is, and they worship him. Even as we are told in other passages, right, demons, evil spirits know Jesus and bow down before him. It is only sinful, willful, rebellious humans like these Pharisees who choose not to worship Jesus. It is only those who are blinded by sin who can't see Jesus for who he really is, who refuse to see Jesus for who he really is, and who do not worship. Now, it's a sour note, isn't it, to end this glorious entry, this coronation ceremony into the city of destiny. But it doesn't end there. As we move on to verse 41, we see a kind of big crunching of gears as we shift from the cheering crowds to the scene of the weeping king. Verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. See, in verse 41 here, we're told that Jesus wept. And here is a weeping or a, with, with, with a heaving sobs kind of weeping. It's a, it's a very powerful word. Right? This, this, this word 
for weeping here, it's not the trickle of tears that you have when you watch a Korean drama, right? Where someone dies or someone breaks up or something. We're talking about a torrent of tears that, that's flowing. We're not talking just about, about a, a small little pang in the heart, in the chest, but we're talking about a deep pain in the heart that Jesus feels. Yeah, there's a heaving, grievous sob that you would see uh, at, at a tragedy, at a great loss. And you'll notice that he's not sobbing for himself. He, he's not crying because of what he will face in his rejection and in his death. His sobs are for those who reject. It is for those who reject the city of Jerusalem. He sobs for them. It's easy, isn't it, for us, for those of us who try to share the gospel with our family and friends and we are rejected to feel sad and sorry for ourselves. And perhaps we might cry, you know, for our own rejection. But perhaps we need to save our tears more for those who reject. We need to grieve for those who don't hear or don't understand the message and so reject Jesus, the messenger from God. We ought to grieve for those who don't see their need for salvation, who don't receive the Saviour. You see, for the people of Jerusalem, in that time, Jesus wishes and longs and years from his heart that they would understand. Jesus says, would, they have, would that you had known the things that would make for peace, would that you had understood that I have come, the Christ on the cult in humility, to give you peace, would you have known that? I've been with you all these years. I've been traveling throughout these regions, performing so many signs, healing so many sick, pointing you to the kingdom, teaching you about the kingdom and about the king and about salvation and about life and about death and judgment. I've done all these things. But they were set in their ways, stubborn in their rejection. They have made up their minds. They had so many opportunities to hear and believe, but now it is too late. Jesus says it is too late. It will be hidden from your eyes. For this group, for this city, it is too late. They had lost their chance. For this city, they had missed their moment. Jesus makes it very clear that he will not wait forever. Now, when the king's long-suffering and merciful patience runs out, the consequences are very serious. They are very grave. Well, you, you know, they may have missed the king, but the king won't miss them because the king will vindicate himself. No just and good and powerful king would allow their subject to rebel and reject them forever. The king will vindicate himself and judgment will fall on this rebellious city. Verse 43, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus had once visited them, or is, has visited them, right, to bring peace. And now he's saying that one day I will return to visit, to bring judgment. Now once again, there's a very specific historical fulfillment to this. 30 plus years after Jesus said these very words in AD 70 in the history books, not just Christian ones, but Jewish ones, we're told that Israel had rebelled against the Romans. And so the Roman forces came down and raised Jerusalem to the ground, AD 70, 30 plus years after these words were spoken. A specific historical fulfillment to these very words of judgment that Jesus brought. But we, we also see that this picture of a siege that Jesus speaks about is a common picture of judgment, spiritual judgment. And so no doubt there is a deep, deeper spiritual judgment that Jesus has in mind here. And we know that that will be on the day of judgment, the final day of judgment, where we all have to give an account for how we responded to the Christ. And, and the defeat, the fall, the judgment on that day will be total and terrifying. Total and terrifying. It's for this reason that, that Jesus weeps with heaving, heaving sobs for this city who has run out of chances because of the judgment that will fall upon them. Would they have known the things that made for peace? Would they have received and, and trusted and come and followed Jesus, the, the, the King, who humbly comes to give them peace? 
would they have done all those things? Now, that's the passage. A, a, a passage that has a very specific historical context and meaning. Now, what does it mean for us today? I hope that you already start to see right, the implications for this for us. Now, we live, as, I, as we all know, in uncertain times. And even more so right now, don't you feel like you need a rock-solid foundation for your life to be built upon? Something certain to be able to grasp onto. You know, we have this in Jesus, our King. We have a foundation, something rock-solid to, to hold on to. Because we see that in the smallest of details in the passage, the location and the condition of a donkey, the words that will be said about it, to, to the, the foretelling of Jesus' mission and what will happen to him as he enters into Jerusalem, to the fulfillment of every Old Testament promise and prophecy, in every small and big detail that Jesus fulfills, he shows that he is in control. He is the king that is in control. And this is the foundation for us to have certainty in our lives. We're given something, someone rock solid to lean into, something rock solid to live, build our lives upon. Right? When, when, when life is shaking all around us, we can be firm in Christ. We stand on solid ground. We live in uncertain times, and we're never promised to be able to figure out with certainty everything that's going on in our day-to-day -day lives, but we are promised Christ the King who is in control. We are promised the certainty of peace that we have through Christ. And I really do hope that this is a source of encouragement and comfort to you today. I, I was wondering whether to preach on this passage this week, whether, you know, in a time of crisis, we should change things up and, and find something more relevant and uplifting, more obviously so. But can we see here the foundation for what brings us joy and for what actually helps us to be able to live life? Now, the greatest certainty and joy we are given to us by, by King Jesus is peace. Glorious, weighty, awesome peace. Right? Glorious peace is, the, son, is the, the, the fact that the Son of God came into this world um, and he gave this prophesied to us in Luke to fulfill to us as he comes into Jerusalem. The glorious peace is what the supreme king wins for us by his humble service on the cross. It's what we so sorely need, isn't it? Peace, first and foremost, is to know that we have a right relationship with God. That all of the mess we've made with sin and with rejection and rebellion, living lives our own way, we have peace with God through Christ. And that's the, 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 I think that's the, the most foundation of all of our foundations is to know that we are right with God through Jesus. That is the greatest peace that we can ever enjoy and have. But there's also a, a, an experience of peace, isn't it, in our relationships with each other. Even this week, even as we, we suffer and struggle in different ways, we see people serving each other with genuine and practical love. People cooking meals for those who are sick or isolated. People uh, uh, touching base, catching up with each other, praying for each other. And if you are feeling isolated, uh, there are people who are filled with Christ and wanting to express the peace of Christ who will want to, to bring some level of wholeness into your lives. So reach out. Through the power of Christ living in us, through the peace of Christ that, that, that flows out from us, Christians experience reconciliation in broken relationships in our day-to-day -day lives. That we're empowered, we're given the resources to be able to forgive each other and to bear with each other, to be patient with each other. And, and hopefully you've already experienced this, this glorious peace at work in personal relationships, broken relationships. We have the peace of knowing that what God has already done in Christ can never be taken away from us. It's already done. Right? Jesus has already gone into, the, uh, into Jerusalem and, and died on the cross and rose again. No matter how chaotic life becomes, no matter how confusing it might be, whether COVID gets resolved or not, nothing can change what God has done for us in Christ. That should fill us with peace. We, ha we have the peace of knowing that the work that God has, has begun in us through Jesus, He will complete and bring to fulfillment on the day that Jesus returns. Right? We have the peace of knowing that God is at work in us. He will, He guarantees that he will finish that word, that he will bring peace, he will bring wholeness 
on that last day. And we ought to have the peaceful assurance of the final redemption, that beautiful picture of the new heavens and new earth, that Revelation 21 that we know and are so familiar with, you know, that place where there is no death and no disease, where there is no darkness, there is no sadness, there is no pain, there is no virus, no bacteria, no fungus, no betrayal, no backstabbing. But I wonder, you know, whether we, we know Revelation 21 in theory, whether we know the peace that is guaranteed to us in the future, the final redemption of all things, whether we only know it in theory, or whether it actually is an experience of peace that we enjoy and that we hope in right now. You know, I think for us at the moment, some of us are filled with a lot of anxiety, is uncertainty and depression. And certainly in the last uh, few weeks, in the last couple of months really even, uh, I've been feeling really weighed down, right? And strangely, as I approach the end of the week, usually I feel quite down. I find writing sermons and preaching quite hard. But I was actually pretty happy towards the end of this week as I, as I considered these truths, as I got to this implication section and started writing down what this passage is meant to do for us, how we're meant to respond. And I realized that the things that I knew in theory I, I hadn't been experiencing and realizing in my heart. You see, these truths ought to result in worship just like the, the, the crowds responded to worship in, in seeing the Christ on the cult coming down the Mount of Olives. For us to be able to know Jesus as the King of Peace should result in our worship and our praise and to be overflowing with thanksgiving and joy. And it made me wonder, why is it that, that I've I, I not been like that in the last few weeks and months? It's so easy, isn't it, to let our troubles uh, uh, fill our hearts in such a way that it shrinks our hearts and it makes us kind of step back and, and retreat from life. But the picture here we see is that the, the knowledge of who Jesus is enlarges our hearts and causes us to overflow with praise and thanks. Now, some years back, uh, I started reading about biblical counseling. And one of the, the, the things that I read that has stuck with me since is the idea that maturity in a person, in a Christian, is someone who's able to hold opposing truths and emotions together. To be able to both feel the weight of all of the problems that we have, as well as to be able to feel the great joy and hopes of, the, uh, of what we have in Christ, the good things and the bad things held together. And if you were to be someone who read your Psalms, you would be able to see this, right? The Psalms are full of people who are able to hold on to the griefs, the tragedies, the laments, the brokenness of life, and yet still be able to praise God and sing with joy. Now, I think sometimes, perhaps at the moment, we are reading too much into the news and to our Facebook groups and to our WhatsApp groups. And it's not a wrong thing to get to know what's going on, but every day it seems, right? I'm at abc.net. Uh, news page, looking at the numbers, right? 11,000 here yesterday, you know, 50-something thousand in Melbourne, uh, you know, a number of uh, uh, rat kits that's going to be available in the next few days. Uh, my, my, my WhatsApp chat groups where, where, you know, people are sharing about who's positive and how we are supporting each other. There are, there's nothing wrong with reading all those things, but I think it makes me just shrink back, shrink deeper into a lot of depression. But what we need to do is to be able to enlarge our hearts with the understanding and the experience of Christ, our King, who gives us peace. And so over the last week or so, I wanted to not spend so much time right, reading the news and all these informations about all the crises that are happening in my life and the people around me, but I wanted to also, and maybe even more so, read God's Word. I'm reading through Second Chronicles at the moment, and it doesn't seem very relevant, right, to, to what's going on in life at the moment, but I started then going, oh, let me pray through the Psalms. The psalmist seems to be experiencing a life of brokenness and be able to worship. And so I started doing that. And then in the past week, some of you may know, Crossway had a sale on all their e-books for $2.95 or something. So I bought up big, right? Eight books for a grand total of like $20 something. It's cheap. And I've just been reading a chapter from different books that speak about different things. Biblical counseling, because everyone's got problems that need help from God's Word about prayer and about the Christian life and about whatever. Just filling my mind and filling my heart with the things of Christ. 
That's what I need right now for me to be able to experience the glorious peace that I have in Him. You see, if we're going to grieve, let us grieve instead for those who don't know this peace, who, who haven't got a Bible to go to where they understand. They haven't got Christian books to go to where they see in it the words and the, the works and the, the glory of Christ. Let us grieve for those who have no hope in this life, who have no rock-solid foundation to build their lives upon, to be able to navigate through the storms of this life. Let us grieve for those who will face the final day of judgment when the king returns. Let us grieve for those. Now, if there's one of you here watching in today or here in this building today, if, if you're here today and you have not yet received Christ as your king and saviour, well, Jesus yearns for you the same thing that he yearned for Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Would that you would know the things that make for peace. Would that you would know and believe in Jesus, the King, who came in humble service to die for your sins. Would that you would know. Thankfully for us, we still live in a time of grace where there is still an opportunity, a time now to be able to respond. But friends, don't miss the moment. Don't miss the moment. When the king returns, it will be too late. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that your word always speaks your glorious truths and always points us to your glorious son, Christ the King, and how he came in humble service in order to deal with the problem of sin that robs us of the joy of peace, the glorious peace that we so need, that we so desire. We give you thanks that Jesus came to give us that peace. We give you thanks that Jesus is the Christ, your King, who in mighty power came in humble service. We thank you that even though these specific historical events happened so long ago, Yet its significance, its, its glory, its goodness rings true, continues to be what we most need today in our uncertainties, in our confusions, in our pains and troubles. We thank you for your word, your word of life. And so, Jesus, wherever we are, whatever we are facing today, whatever is in the condition of our hearts, we pray that you will enlarge our worship and praise of the Lord Jesus, that you will grow our experience of peace and joy and thanksgiving. Uh, as we hear your word about Jesus, your son. For those who have not yet come to put their trust in Jesus, who do not have this solid foundation to build their lives upon, we pray that you'll open their eyes to see, to know, and to believe in Jesus. All this we pray in his precious name.